<laughs> All right, we'll jump in. This now? Hmm? Okay. All right. Yep. Keith, thank you for coming in and agreeing to do this. No, it's great. Thank you, Paul. This is great. I love this idea. So like I threatened to do, I will probably start with the most boring basic questions. Sure. Um, but I, I, I find, especially with people that I've met, um, full disclosure, Keith and I met like in the, the theater world stuff. Um, what was the first... I don't, you, I'm sure yeah. you're playing a guitar and it, <laughs> was it loose? Was it loose with Lilith? Oh, what I didn't did do that one. You don't think? No. I don't know. It was, it was one of, it was one of those things that I meet so many people and, and mm. to say, when did you first meet? It's like, I, I don't know. But everybody always knows. Everybody always knows like the year and the moment and the second. And I'm like, yeah, it was um, a while ago. But I was going to say, you know, it's funny. It's one of those things where you, you, quote unquote, know somebody for a while. Right. But you realize you don't really know. You don't know really him know him. Well. You know I'm like in the capacity of, mm-hmm. oh, I've, uh, oh, <clears throat> Paul played guitar while I was some weird actor or, you know, <laughs> and that was it. It's like, oh, hey, it's Paul. Hey. Yeah. You know, but that's it. And you, you don't know, know any, anything. You know, it's like, like, I didn't even know where your, you know, your studio was. It's like, I'm great. where are you? <laughs> where do you do stuff? Welcome. Uh, just yesterday, somebody I was talking to who I've, I've literally known as long as I've been in Louisville, I said something about where I grew up, um, which is a small town in Louisiana, about an hour north of New Orleans. And he's like, you're from Louisiana? <laughs> well, yes. You know, it's just those basic, basic right. things that fill in somebody's story. So along those lines, first off, where were you born? I was born in Louisville. Born right, right you were Louisville, Louisville through yeah. and through. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I never... I have so many active friends who like either they were born somewhere else and they came here or they were born here and they left and they came back. Mm-hmm. I just stayed here. You know, I never had that wanderlust. You know, it's like, oh, I need to go live in another city. I need to go, I need to go explore. It's like I'll visit for like a week and I go, oh, Chicago, that's great. All right, I'm going back home now. And I have friends who are just like, you know, as soon as they were like, I got to go to Europe. I'm like, well, you go ahead to Europe and uh, tell me about it. <laughs> And, and, and part of that is like, I should want to go to Europe because mm-hmm. everybody wants to go to Europe. Mm-hmm. And like, like if I want a trip to Europe, I'd be like, yay, Europe. And I would be <laughs> all over it. But like, I don't feel like, all right, I need to save up like five grand so I can go to Europe. I'm like, no, no, I need to save up a couple hundred bucks so I could drive to, you know, Columbus. <laughs> I'm, I'm so easy with, I just, I don't need a city that's way away. Like mm-hmm. I haven't finished with America yet. Yeah. You know? I don't need to go to Europe necessarily. Uh, do, you, do you consider yourself, or in general, are you a homebody? I mean, like, are you happiest when you're not doing anything, just sort of? It's, it's a split. Yeah. Like, because I am really very into um, having something to do. Like, even as a child, I was like, mm-hmm. well, what's the thing we're doing today? What are we looking forward to? But if that's all I do, then it makes me crazy. So I need to to have a place where I just sit and I don't do anything. But then too much of that makes me crazy. So I have to have like, all right, it's very busy for the next two weeks, but then the next three days I don't have anything so mm-hmm. I can catch up. I need that, that balance. This is totally going off on a side tangent. Well, or that's sort of redundant all by itself, but um, as opposed to a straightforward a tangent. straightforward <laughs> tangent. <laughs> I'm always fascinated uh, by the number of people I meet who are in performing stuff who are actually secretly introverts. Yeah. And I, and I know that, like, that word has almost lost all meaning in recent years. Like, you know, how many BuzzFeed quizzes? Are you an introvert? Right. Um, but do you, do you think of yourself as an introvert? Like that sort of busyness 
downtime balance? I don't. I am truly an extrovert. And here's the difference. My partner, Jim, is an introvert, and I didn't get it. I Mm. just thought introvert meant shy. (laughs) Yeah. So, well, you're just shy. Um, But really what it is, there is, um, when we're around people, when we're stimulated socially, there's a chemical that the brain secretes. So there's there's a a center in the brain that gets stimulated, Mm -hmm. I should say. And for extroverts, the more stimulation there is, the greater it is. Yay, give me more of that. Mm -hmm. For introverts, there's like a threshold. And they go, okay, that's all I can do. And it took me years to understand that about Jim. My sister's an introvert. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's very social and friendly, but like she like needs her little cocoon away from everybody. And it's just basically a difference in brain chemistry. Mm-hmm. And I honestly just thought it was, oh, you're just shy. Go out there and, you know, get in the groups. Um, Jim and I, we had to make this rule because we would go to parties and I had to be there first and I had to stay till everybody was gone. <laughs> and he would be like for just miserable for four hours. Right. And so finally we had to make a rule like whichever one of us wants to leave first, the other one says, OK, and we go. Mm-hmm. Because the other thing I would do is like I would say goodbye to everybody in the room. It's like I can't just leave. I have to say right. goodbye, which is another hour. And so now we do the French exit. Do you know the French yeah. exit? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's my favorite. It's just like, all right, let's just go. Nobody will know. Like I might just <laughs> say goodbye to the host and a couple of other people, right. and then just go. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you're near me as I leave the door, mm-hmm. then you win. But otherwise, you're gonna have to say where's Keith, and then hear it through the grapevine. What happened to him? Right. But um, to sort of go back to the uh, off the tangent to the other tangent, mm-hmm. um, there are a lot of performers who are introverts because introversion, and that's not even a word, is it? Um, being an sure. introvert, yeah. it is now, uh, being an introvert doesn't have anything to do with shy. Mm-hmm. You can be like, yeah, I'm out here, I'm oh, doing yeah. it. And then it's like, all right, that's all I can do. Mm-hmm. Like, because there are so many like comedians that I know that they're on stage like boom, 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 boom. And yep. then they're like, all right, my show is over. I'm going to go sit in the green room until right. my next show. Right. And then there are comedians who are boom, 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 boom. And then we'll shake the hands of all the people and chat and da, da, da. And I'm that guy. I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. oh, thanks for coming. Oh, you have, oh, you have a baby. That's nice. <laughs> da, 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 da. I got to go. I got to go. Yeah, new show. Bye. Mm-hmm. And then bam, right back up on the stage. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I was one of those. I didn't. I used to think I was just shy and that I had social capabilities, but I was just shy. And it was a few years ago, a friend of ours, um, we were talking and, and just out of nowhere, she said, well, you know, that's because you're an introvert. I'm like, all right, what do you, what do you mean? And all I knew about introversion at that point, you know, those uh, psychology profile tests they make right, you take, you know, right. when you're doing whatever. Right. Um, you know, and I would see it on there. And I thought, oh, those are those people who can't deal with other people. Right, right. There's such a stigma against being an introvert. Yeah. It's like, oh, you don't like people. You're antisocial. <laughs> right. And I'm, I'm one of those sort of fairly social introverts. I do have a weird, I was just talking to somebody about this. I have a weird upper level limit, though. Right. Like if, if it's like three or four of us hanging out. X amount of people. Yeah. Exactly. I just talked to a fella. Um, I was coaching. Gilda's Club had done this like benefit but mm-hmm. it was like a night of a thousand laughs and so they got these five people who had never done comedy mm-hmm. and they said we want you to do comedy and bring your friends and we'll vote with your friends and you know your friends will vote with money and and we'll raise money and i met a guy who just who broke it down just that way it's like if i'm with two or three people 
I'm good. Mm-hmm. But if it gets literally like to five people, I can't do it. Yeah. And I was like, wow. Cause I'm like, Hey everybody. <laughs> However many let's, of you, there let's are. hang out all of us. A couple of things I wanted to branch off of there, but really quick circling about around to this, just cause I'm always curious about this end of somebody's bio too. So you were born here, you mm-hmm. grew up here. Yeah. Um, I know everybody asks the classic, where did you go to school? But more to me, where, where did you grow up? What part of town? I grew up in Parkland, which is like 22nd Street to yeah. like maybe 28th Street. Sure, yeah. Um, so it's not the West West End, mm-hmm. but it's West. Um, it's West enough that people go, ooh, you live down there. That's, that's, the, that's, what, that's that West, you know. But when I was growing up, it was so, so neighborhoody. It was very, um, you know, leave it to Beaver. Because, like, there was a library right down the street. Mm-hmm. And there was a grocery store right down the street. There was a tailor. I didn't even know what tailors did, but I was glad we had, we got a tailor. <laughs> um, there was, like, a little store, a little corner store in every corner where you could buy canned goods. Mm-hmm. You know, he had meat. You mm-hmm. could actually buy meat from the guy. You know, it's pretty, it's pretty friendly. You, you know, you rode your bike all day. You hung out with your friends, whatever. You knew all your neighbors, that kind of stuff. Was that your, your, your whole growing up? It, w- it was pretty much my whole, the whole time I was growing up, becoming mm-hmm. an adult. It was like that. Mm-hmm. I didn't fit in my neighborhood mm-hmm. because I had a lot of, uh, like, I, I, I was different than the other kids. Like, I was super book smart back when book smart wasn't really the thing to do. I wasn't athletic because I was a little round child. Mm. So I didn't do it. I didn't like athletics very much. Uh, I was just very bookish. And, and now I was shy. I wasn't extroverted. Like, mm. once I knew you, I was like, hey, let's hang out forever. <laughs> the more, the merrier. Everybody. But I was very shy. And I just, and I think I got picked on a lot. I guess it was bullying. Like, now we call it bullying. Mm-hmm. But... I was picked on a lot because I was smart in school or I was teacher's pet or I was not very athletic. Mm -hmm. Um, I had asthma. I wore orthopedic shoes. It was fun. You were hit. I had all of the stuff. Glasses at the time still. I didn't have glasses then. I didn't have glasses then. That would have been, that would have been the bonus. Yeah. Very much a mama's boy. Very much. Mm -hmm. I just want to stay in the house. It's too hot to go outside. Um, (laughs) It, I was. Yeah. And then as I grew up, I was trying, I wasn't fitting into the, the groove of what a black guy was supposed to be, a black person was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, I wasn't street, if you will. I wasn't, I, I didn't know, you know, all of the things I'm supposed to be doing and mm-hmm. I didn't fit. And so then that was tricky too. And then what was funny was busing happened when I was 11, like up until the time I was 10, I went to literally the same building for school. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. so much so that it was about probably, I would say it was about maybe half a mile, three quarters of a mile from my house. And I would just walk there Yeah, because it was the same building every single time. And we're, we're about the same age, I guess. How old are yeah. you? 53. Yeah, I'm 50. Yeah. So this was all, we're talking late 70s-ish. Yeah, this yeah. was, I was 11, so it was 75. 70s, 70s. Um, and so when we got bust. All the black kids were on the same bus and all their parents were saying white people are evil and all their parents were saying black people are evil. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it was a mess. Like people were setting buses on fire and I'm dumpsters. I'm glad we got past and, all of that. Yeah, yeah it's just so <laughs> it's completely different now. I'm sorry. I totally glossed over that. People were setting. People would set school buses on fire. 
to keep kids from getting on the bus. Oh, that's just or they'd mm. stand outside the school. I mean, it was like Little Rock. Yeah. People would stand outside the school and go, go back where you came from. Yeah. Like, we just did this 20, min- you know, 20 years ago. It didn't work then. <laughs> and so when I'd get to school, I would be in a classroom full of my classmates, most of whom were white because they were sending the black kids to white schools, mm-hmm. not so much the other way. Right. But then at lunchtime or on the bus, I had, well, on the bus, I was with black kids. Mm-hmm. At lunchtime, I had to choose. Are you going to sit with the kids you came with on the bus? Or mm-hmm. are you going to sit with the kids in your classroom? And Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I was like, well, if I sit with the kids in my classroom, then... I'm trying to be white, or I think I'm better than the other kids, and then it'll just be even more miserable in my neighborhood. If I sit with the black kids who I don't even like, who doesn't even want me to sit with them, I'm just like, well, this is stupid. So I mean, finally, I just sat with the kids I, you know, in my class, because it was just, I was like, why am I, why am I trying to get you to like me? Because I felt like, I mean, as a kid, you feel like I want to belong to the group that I'm supposedly in. Right. So you want to belong in your family, you want to yeah. belong in your neighborhood, you want to belong to the, the race or religion that you're supposed to be part of. And it was just, I didn't belong to any of those things. I was like, I don't fit in this family. I don't fit in this neighborhood. You just start going around with a book going, has anybody else read this? Has anybody else read? <laughs> that was the big, anybody else read? Any read? No. Oh, okay. oh uh, football. That's something. Yeah, so I'm just going to sit on the swing and read if you, don't, if you don't mind. I had a brief disaster of an experience playing peewee football which thankfully my parents took me out of because they thought I would get hurt. But I was like, my mom would sometimes drop me off at the library after school because, you know, she's like, I need to go do something. Do you want to come? <laughs> do you want to come to the department store with me while I shop for clothes? Or I can drop you off at the library. And to me, it was like the difference between, you know, do you want to go to Piggly Wiggly or Disney World? You know, Right. I, mean, I loved yeah. the, li- the library yeah. saved my life here, in here. the summer because mm-hmm. I would go... And it, it was not far at all. You could walk down to, it was about six blocks from my house. You could walk to the library and I would stay all day. I would, um, and this is ancient years ago. Like I would see something on television. Like I'd see some old movie on television. They had a song in the movie. I'm like, I got to see what that song is. Yeah. So then you go to the library and uh, for you younger boys and girls, they had a thing called a card catalog. <sighs> what you would flip through and hope you found what you wanted. And so I would find that record, and then they had, you know, record players. You could put the record on, and you put the big giant headphones on. You mm-hmm. sit and listen to the record. So I would sit and listen to entire records, yeah. you know, and I would write the lyrics down and try to remember, you know, because I, I was always into music, and I was into musicals, um, just because everybody was happy in a musical. Like nothing horrible <laughs> happened, you know. This was before like Andrew Lloyd Webber. Before tragedy would strike in the middle, the like why, why, is, why are people dying? It's a musical. What are you doing? Cats don't die. So yeah. By so the way, I, you keep adding to the list. You've now put I liked musicals on there as well. I mean, Keith, man. No, yeah, no. There was no question <laughs> that this boy was going to be gay. There was no. Well, I didn't even mean that, but. Yeah, no, no. The list of of why I had no no friends. Just outsider status the, in general. Exactly. If we want to get more specific. Yeah, no, well, I mean, that Although was I just will, it. Like, like, I'll throw out there. Ideas. There were so many anomalies within me that didn't fit in the other. Like, okay, you can be this, but you can't be this mm-hmm. and this mm-hmm. and this and this and this and this. Yeah, I mean, just the library was like, this is, yeah. I love this place. Like, there was, I had a librarian who would be like, you know, she, you know, there's supposed to be like an adult section or whatever. Right. And she didn't care. Hmm. 
because mm-hmm. she saw me all the time. She's like, mm-hmm. well, he reads voraciously. I had my little, and they were paper back then. You had this little yeah. paper library card, and they'd write, you know, on your card that you'd been to the library. Um, I read everything. Yeah, and yeah. what was great was that my sister read to me as a kid because she was sort of a surrogate mom because my mother worked all hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she read to me all the time. And so I was like, I want to do that. What is this reading you speak of? Mm-hmm. And so I started reading when I was three. Oh, wow. Um, and so I read everything. And I read, and my mother read all the time. Mm-hmm. That's how she relaxed. She read and did crossword puzzles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there were always books in the house. And some of them were like, you know, The Mouse and the Motorcycle or <laughs> Judy Bloom, And then some right. of them were like Harley Quinn Romance, number 17, Windswept, you know, Lady. You know, and I was like, all right. So she went, okay, all right. I don't know what a bodice is, but I'll look that up. I'll look it up in the dictionary. But yeah, I mean, it, there was never any censorship as to reading. Mm-hmm. Like I read, there was this book um, by Mary Higgins Clark, who writes kind of this horror mystery stuff. Right. And it was called Where Are the Children? And it was just basically this story about these kids who keep get disappearing in this New England town, because she loved skewering New England, evidently. And, and it just turns out that this kid had just been kidnapping them and mm-hmm. putting them in the basement. Because <laughs> she was so upset. Because like, she was this kid. It was very interesting, though, because she was this kid who did everything right all the time and got ignored. And so um, she was tired of being that kid, so she would just kind of put kids in the basement. And it was like, where's the children? Where are children? And then they finally <laughs> find out it's her. Like She had this thing for a while about kids who were like, a little twisted because of adults. Right. You right. know, and so they act out in these certain ways. There was one called um, Comes the Blind Fury. She's got the title thing. She's down. got, she, I loved her titles. <laughs> Comes the Blind Fury was a book about these kids move into a house mm-hmm. and there's a doll in the house. The girl finds the doll and then um, it belonged to some girl who lived in the house before mm-hmm. and the doll was haunted by this girl's spirit mm-hmm. and, um, I think this girl was a murderer or something. And so then again, it was one of those where, you know, people are disappearing mm-hmm. and it's this little girl. And the, I remember the quote to this day. It was so funny. The, the, the title, I don't know if it's a real quote from a real book, but the quote she put in the book to explain what this child is, comes the blind fury with the unsheathed sword and slits the thin spun life. And I thought, man, that's great. I don't know what it means, but I love it's great. It. It's like it's a great quote, and I still don't even know if it's real. Now I have to look it up and find out. If it's a we should quote. look that up. We should. We'll take a minute. We have technology. She's like, it's interesting as you talk because I've never read any of her stuff, but it's like Stephen King meets Judy Bloom. That's like, exactly <laughs> it. That's exactly. Or or the other guy, Roald Dahl. Yeah. Oh. He has the worst childhood ever because all of his stories are so tragic. It's like you always have to go live with aunts or grandmothers. You know, I can't remember right offhand his his bio, but didn't he? I think he was old enough. Didn't he grow up like during wartime England? Probably. You know, where all the kids were sent away oh, yeah. from the cities and all that kind of stuff. You know, that kind of thing leaves a mark. And just out of curiosity, you were talking about sort of growing up with the with the reading in the household. It's none of my business. But what'd your mom do? She worked at Philip Morris literally from the time she was eighteen till the time she retired. Wow. So she was, and it's very interesting with my mother because she was a black woman who was born in the 30s, um, which meant 
she was like less than less than like black people were less than and she was even less Mm because she was a woman and so once she found this job and it it was the idea that you find a job and keep it for the rest of your life never Mm -hmm. let this job go because you may not ever get another one yeah so she started out in what they call the stemmery which is basically where they bring the tobacco in and she would just sweep the floor Mm-hmm. You know, and then eventually she started pulling the tobacco off the leaves or whatever. And then she moved into the actual plant where they made cigarettes. And then she, I remember telling people, you know, they would say, what did your parents do? Like for, you know, career day or whatever. I mm-hmm. said, my mom's a boxer. <laughs> Which just meant she put the the boxes of cigarettes. She would right. put the loose cigarettes in the box, mm-hmm. you know, and then put the boxes in a carton. Um, and I didn't really quite understand. You know, I just, you know, I just, she's a boxer. That's what she said. Um, but no, she worked there, and it was like before um, you know, OSHA came in and went, okay, let's not have people doing really difficult stuff that kills them. Yeah. So she would lift these giant trays, you know, or she and another one would lift these trays, and they did that all day, and it just, you know, it destroys your body. Oh, God, yeah. And so finally, at, in her 50s, she just, she had like, basically had to retire because she couldn't work anymore, like mm-hmm. disability, retirement, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, Philip Morris really took care of their employees, though. I mean, she had pretty good pension, and so that was good. But it was just, it was very interesting. And I'd have to think back to, because she was um, very adamant that I go to college, which I wanted to go to college for certainly, but I was going to have to be an engineer. <laughs> and I liked math and science, but I didn't like engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was going to be a school far away for the kid who doesn't even like to get out of the swing so it's far away relative but it was like Knoxville Tennessee which is like four hours away I just I really didn't want to go I wanted to be in theater I wanted to be in theater my whole life but I never had the guts to do it until much later she said I remember this I remember this moment when she said well you can go to L and study theater if you want to but I'm not going to help you and I was 18 and I didn't know anything about the world because mama's boy super sheltered I didn't know how to make my way to do anything so I'm like okay I'll go to Tennessee and then what I found out was the way she was, because it was only a partial scholarship, we didn't mm-hmm. read the fine print. And so the way she was making up the rest of the money is she had taken a second, while she was working at Philip Morris, she had taken a second job with this cleaning company. So mm-hmm. she was cleaning buildings at night. And I found that out. I don't know if my brother told me or my sister. And I said, okay, we can't, we can't do this anymore. I'll come back home. I'll stay, right, I'll right. stay in engineering, but I'll, I'll pay for it with loans or whatever, but we can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually I just ended up quitting engineering because I was like, oh, it wasn't Tennessee. It was the engineering. So I just said, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I was I, like, I was almost mad at her for a while because you're a teenager. You don't understand sure. the, the motivation. Sure. But then once I look at her life and it's like, I don't want you to have to struggle. I mean, if you can be an engineer, you'll make a lot of money. You're a very smart kid. I don't want you to have to struggle like I had to struggle. Mm-hmm. Like black people have to struggle. And once I got that, like my heart just, you know, fell open. It's like, this is love. This is what love is. I mean, she didn't know because she had never been shown by her mother what love is. She didn't know how to show it to us. Mm -hmm. Um, And so her idea was, all right, by doing these things, I'm showing you how much I love you. Mm -hmm. But she never really said it. Like no one ever really said it in, in the family at all until my sister had a son. And I think what happens with grandparents, because it happened in every household, like of my mother's, you know, like her sister and her brother and like that, is that 
all of the mistakes they made with their children, they try to make up for with their grandchildren. Mm-hmm. So you have children who's like, I, you know, I hate my dad because he was so mean or my mom is so cold. And then you have grandchildren who are like, I love grandpa. And I'm like, is this the same guy? Mm-hmm. Is this the same? So that guy, this mm-hmm. one who, this one, okay. Um, and it's just, it's so fascinating to see that and to see that, that, because as you get older, you see patterns of things. You live long enough to go, oh, this is what people do. Right. My, I was just telling somebody about my grandmother and by all accounts, um, and when you see pictures of her earlier in life, you know, sort of, you know, flinty country woman, you know, living on a farm. And my mom would always say how harsh she had been. Like her, her father was the softer natured one. And mm-hmm. my grandmother was just harsh and mean. She spoiled me rotten. Sure. Absolutely rotten. But like you were saying, it's, 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 it's like they, they, they like that next generation. They go, Oh, I'm not literally responsible for you mm-hmm. so I can be as liberal as I want to be mm-hmm. something soft and then send you back to your parents that's true and the, that that link between responsibility and affection or, or showing love like that I don't think people pay attention to that enough because some right. people when they get locked on to I have to take care of business right I have to, I've got I've got to work I've got to do whatever it's like you know what that's like it reminds me of something when I direct a bunch of kids in a show or when I'm being directed in a show most of the notes directors give are fix this. Mm-hmm. Rarely is the note that was great, keep doing that. Mm-hmm. Because directors have so much stuff they have to worry about. They've got to right. worry about the lighting, I've got to worry about the, you know, the scenery and the costumes and the da 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 da. So if I can just say fix that and then go away from it, that's fine. And that's a lot of times, unfortunately, what parents do. Mm-hmm. Like they find what's wrong and say fix that, but they mm-hmm. don't say, but you're also all these wonderful things. Right. And so it was very interesting to see that from a perspective of, from the theater world, because it's like, that's what people generally do. They find what's wrong and then they, they say, fix that. I was doing, I was doing this thing with um, a group of actors and somebody like the, the person who runs the whole group said, you know, cause I, you know, I'd been doing it with them for a while and they were like why are people so disgruntled and why are they so why do they think I'm so mean and I said it's because you never talk to them unless they're screwing up mm-hmm. you know and it's a big like what it is it's a, a just real quick it's like a big franchise of people it's like and you go here and do whatever their acting is you go here and do the same little thing or whatever it's kind of a murder mystery thing mm-hmm. and you can't like if you have 40 people and then you have 10 groups of 40 people. You mm-hmm. can't go to every person and go, hey, good job, hey, good job, hey, good job. Mm-hmm. I get that. Mm-hmm. But it also can't be the other way where the only time I hear from you right. is I'm in trouble. You know, it's like, I don't know why people think they're always in trouble. It's like, because that's what we're conditioned to do. <laughs> if you only say you're in trouble when you talk to me, then I'm assuming every time you talk to me, I'm in trouble. Mm-hmm. And so then my hackles are up and then whatever you say to me, I'm going to like fight against it because yeah. like, I don't know quite how to say to you, hey, I'm also doing good stuff. Yeah. Can you see that? Yeah. Um, and then also being an actor, once I got past that and I thought, oh, the director didn't say anything. I'm just going to keep doing whatever that is, mm-hmm. you know, um, or I'm going to keep trying new stuff until I say, hey, don't try that. It's like, OK, I'll try something else. Um, and that's what I sort of try to teach the kids I teach. It's like try stuff. Mm-hmm. Directors love it when you try stuff because then they don't have to say, no, you need to be louder here. No, mm-hmm. I need more of this here. But I also, especially with kids. 
try to find something great that they've done. I really like, you know, that you were really big right there. That was very funny what you did. Keep doing that. Mm -hmm. um, so that there's a balance, you know, so they can say, oh, well, he, he actually is being fair. He's not just saying this is horrible, this is horrible, this right. is horrible. I'm seeing you, and I'm not just seeing... I'm not just seeing the stuff you're doing wrong. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So when you got started doing theater, because, you know, you're, you're talking about the sort of the directorial side and, and, you know, working with the kids and stuff, this has all been more recent stuff for you or, or have you always like the educational stuff or even just directing side like well the it was a weird way I started I, I was going to be an actor I just want to act you know because mm -hmm. I would watch I mean I was the kid who watched the Tonys again keep keep putting that list down <laughs> things are adding up and it was funny because everybody else is watching you know I mean Mannix or Mod Squad or whatever was on and I'm in the kitchen with this little black and white TV mm -hmm. it was my television I think I got it for Christmas one year but, you know, it moved around the house um, because it was portable. And so it was in the kitchen, and I would, it was a little black and white, and I would watch the Tonys in the kitchen mm -hmm. for three, because nobody else cared about the Tonys. My sister would, would, you know, like she's out with her friends or whatever, my brother's doing whatever he's doing, my mom's watching Perry Mason or again or whatever, and I'm watching the Tonys, and I'm going, I really want to do that. I really want to, you know, or the Oscars or whatever mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. And... I was always acting out, I was always goofy, I was always imitating everybody. And I thought, I'm gonna be an actor, and I'm just, I'm great, no training. I go to uh, Kentucky Shakespeare Festival, mm -hmm. no training. Let me say that again. Um, and I auditioned with something. I don't even know what, it, well, I don't even remember what monologue I did, but it must have been, I could look back and say, yeah, I wasn't an actor then. And so what happened was, uh, Kirk Toflin was there, and he was, he was, um, auditioning people and he said how would you we need somebody to teach summer camp would you like to do that I'm like yeah because it was money and you were held at this point uh 20s I'm okay. not exactly sure where right. in there probably not yet 25 I don't think um and I was like yeah I'd love to do that because I didn't have any money coming in mm -hmm. and that's where I learned to teach because there were like skilled people teaching and I was sort of I mean I was sort of helped but I was also sort of a shadow and I would write down with, oh, okay, so we did this today. Okay, we're doing that today. We did this today. We're doing mm -hmm. that today. Uh, this is the game I can play. This is the thing we can do, whatever. And so by the end of the, by the, end of the, the camps, all of the camps, I was teaching. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, this is your group of kids, mm -hmm. and you're responsible for doing that. You know, because like, it was like, I don't know, 10 weeks or whatever. It was all summer. You know? And so by the end of the summer, I'd gotten enough knowledge. I'd go, okay, mm -hmm. this is what we're going to do. Why don't you stand over there? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And that's how it started. And so then once I did that, I was able to do that. Well, I touched with, you know, Kentucky Shakespeare. And so then they would send me out during the, during like school year. And then once I did enough of that, then I ended up doing with all of the other theater, the actors, theater, stage one, mm -hmm. anybody who had a caravan of people going out. I was like, yeah, I'll do it. You know, I did, I did a little tour for a while mm -hmm. um, with uh, stage one, I mean with uh, actors theater. Um, I did a thing in Lexington. It was like some, it was a musical. And I don't remember it was, it was something about Kentucky history or something. It was really kind of awful. <laughs> um, I realized I'm not a touring performer, mm -hmm. like a troupe. You know, like, hey, let's all get in a van and drive to, yeah. yeah. 
I'm not that fella. Like, I'll go by myself. Like, right. I do stuff where it's like, mm-hmm. all right, you just go and get in your car and drive to this thing and do, like, your little one-person show and yada, da 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 and then get back in the car. But I'm not like, hey, let's set up the thing and do, no. Like the, the being part of a gang, basically. Yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's not even being part of a gang. I just, <laughs> I don't know. I just, I'm not a fan of, for me, not in general. I'm just, I don't like the whole touring in a van situation, you know. Because there are too many personalities, you know, there are too many, you know, like if everybody's like, we're super professional, here we go. But we're 20-something, you know, so somebody stays up too late, somebody's late and they make us late. Or, right. you know, somebody forgot something or somebody's whiny because it's too hot or something, you know, rather than let's just be grown-ups and drive over here and do our gig and come back. Um, and now at this point, I don't think I would just because I'm 53 and I'm like, I don't really want to <laughs> drive around <laughs> for $70 mm-hmm. a week. I think if if more people either had to like tour with a touring theater group in one van or right. or, or rock band or whatever, right. like all y'all supposedly dedicated to one purpose, right? Crammed into a van for let's say a month, right? Like it would change everybody's attitudes about what the variety of humanity is capable of. My oh my, <laughs> it's just it's amazing. It's you, amazing because you go into it thinking we are all one mind and we just want to do the art. We just want to bring joy to the children. <laughs> and then it's, it's really very funny. You as a performer understand this. Like, and then you get on stage like, we are doing this. And here's your art. <clears throat> Good night. And then you get back in the van. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really it's like, like an on-off switch. Yep. Um, I think I was talking to Liz Ventress, who I had never realized she had a background in the circus. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? Oh. She wrote a play about it. Again, did not know. I, I, she keeps bees. This I knew. Uh, like, I'm and, and a fellow just, beekeeper. But, yeah. A uh, fellow bee. Again, see, that's what I'm talking about. There are so many bee. It's, it's, it's a weird thing. Like, if, if a person who is a beekeeper says it, I have bees. Like, how? What? <laughs> who are all these people with bees? Where, and where's my honey, beekeepers? It's very much an underground movement. And <laughs> get your own damn bees. Gonna, uh, take, I'm not getting any bees. I'm just <laughs> going to say that right out loud. I'm not getting any bees. I will go to Rainbow Blossom or the farmer's market. I usually get my honey at the farmer's market. Unless somebody gives me some honey, I go to the right. farmer's market and get actual honey and not like this the thing in the bear, whatever that is. Stuff that's cut with cheap. cheap what do they Exactly. Uh, fra- high fructose. Chinese yeah, high fructose. Fructose or yeah. sucrose yeah. or something. Some os. I, I will see if I have any. I've been without a hive for the last year and a half, so I'm jealously guarding the honey that I have. You don't have to give me honey. But if I no, I'm just saying. I want to no, put that you, out there. No, I've got honey right now. This is something <clears> I discovered <throat> about honey from uh, Jane Jones, who I work with at Actors Theater, is that you can reconstitute honey. Honey never dies. Honey never dies. Which I think it's uh, it's my latest. I think it's a Mary Higgins Clark novel. <laughs> honey never dies. There's a kid named Honey, and is she in a basement? People just trying to keep trying to kill her in various Mary Higgins Clark ways, and she won't die. Honey never dies. Um, no, I didn't know that. Like, I would be like, oh, this is all crazy. And I would throw it out. I was like, what did you do? Like, people were like, Adam, what did you do? Oh, you they just have, warming up. They like, have found I didn't know. honey in tombs, you know, exactly. from the it's ancient pharaohic. That's amazing yeah. to it's me, crazy. and it's not moldy or mm-hmm. anything. It's a it's weird, weird thing. Bees are weird. Bees are immortal. Wow, I, for, I totally lost this. Oh, the beekeeping thing. Back to Liz Ventress. The circus thing. Um, <laughs> but just talking about that split, the on-off switch. Right. I didn't realize it at the time, but my f- I remember my first glimpse of that was at the circus. 
we were it used to be a small traveling circus sure. come through town every year and set up out by the airport yeah it was one ring and <laughs> i don't know why that's important but that's how small it was just one ring um we were sitting like right near the entry flap which to me i just loved because you know seeing everything before everybody else did and the stuff comes thundering through right. or whatever um but there was one point where the flap stayed a little bit open mm-hmm. and i remember glancing out and there were two clowns sitting on <laughs> sitting on turned up boxes. And in my memory, at least, you know, they're both smoking cigarettes. Right. Probably drinking, although I may have added that detail later. I don't know for sure. But they were just they were just being people. They were just people whose job it was to be clowns. And everything about their demeanor was like the complete antithesis of clown in the ring. Right. And I'm like, oh, my God. And it was just for a second. And I think, you know. Something else came through, or they closed the flap, or whatever. But like that was the beginning for me, like seeing, holy crap, wasn't quite as bad as the time I got sick at Disneyland in California, and in a fevered delirium, I could see through the back door, <clears throat> and I saw characters taking their heads off. Oh yeah. And when you're feverish and you see right. that, it's not even about seeing behind the curtain. It's right. just you know. It's just weird. It's well, just that, weird. that and that's what's so interesting about being an entertainer especially being a comedian mm-hmm. because people think you're funny all the time like you're constantly funny like you'll sure. just be sitting having <clears throat> dinner like tell me a joke like what am i like you didn't put a quarter in me i'm not a nickelodeon what are you talking about? do but people pe- do people, people expect- actually ask you to tell jokes oh my god yeah and i'm always very hesitant and 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 unless it's a specific reason i'm mentioning it I generally don't i mean like obviously i want people to come see my show but other than that like if i'm in the classroom I don't bring it up. A lot of times people, when they introduce me, like I go to a classroom and I'll do a talk about, hey, life in the theater or live your dreams or whatever. Somebody will say he does, he's an actor and he's also, he's a teacher and he's a comedian, you know? And the kid first thing, tell me a joke. And so I always have a joke in my back, some kind of back pocket joke or something. But um, like like you say, like you don't want to be, because you can't be on all the time because Mm -hmm. then you're never on at Mm -hmm. any time. Right, right. Because you have to like have a reserve you know, and then you, I'm a comedian. Right. And then the show is over and you're not until the next time you are. But I mean, I find all of that very interesting. I find that, you know, the, the, you know, the animals taking their heads off and I just find very like the, interesting. There, there is no happier place for me than back, any version of backstage. I love seeing behind the curtain. Yeah. I really love to see like, I mean, like one of my favorite things about working for actor theater as a teaching artist. Mm-hmm is that I get to see how they put stuff together or how the show works or, mm-hmm. or, or you know, every once in a while, you know, they'll have a, a preview or like I'll go to a tech rehearsal mm-hmm. or, and you just be like, oh, so this, you guys aren't, oh, this is not magic. And I don't mind that because it doesn't ruin the magic for me. Not at all. No. Like I can go see a Broadway show and be like, wow, that came down, this happened, this happened. And then I can go in the back and go, how'd you guys do that? Right. Because right. for me, what it does, it makes it even more amazing that they did it. Mm-hmm. Like, so you had to do this and this and mm-hmm. this and this and this. And then it happened. And it was okay. And you do this night after night after night. Wow. I have never been afraid to find out how magic tricks are done. I love magic. Right. Especially like close-up stuff. And I, it has never concerned me when somebody reveals a trick. Oh, shame on you. No. I, it's that much more amazing to me because I will see how they did it. And then the next time I see it And then it the done, fact that they could execute that still. And you're sitting there like you're going, oh, I know how this is done. And they still pull it off and you couldn't see it. I had to, for, for 
different plays, I've had to learn how to play three-card Monty, which is that game that they have in New York in the tiny table. Mm -hmm. I've had to learn how to play the guitar. I've had to learn how to play the piano. Mm -hmm. Like just like a quick blues, sure. three-bar blues, which is like chord, 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 chord. Mm -hmm. But I've never had a greater appreciation for anybody who does anything until I've had to do it like from scratch. Like I was, I was cast in the piano lesson. And I play um, this guy called Whining Boy, who's sort of a drunk uncle who shows mm -hmm. up and, you know, wanders through town or whatever. You know, I say, okay, you're this guy. He's like, um, I, don't, I don't play the piano. He's like, oh, okay, we'll work it out, we'll work it out. I was like, okay, you can't just work it out. I don't play the piano. So I got a friend who, David Bizanis, whose dad owns mm -hmm. Bizanis Music Mart right down on uh, the Bardstown Road. And um, I said, you know, he's a comic, and I've helped him with comedy. I said, I need a favor. I need you to teach me you know, this song, you know, 12 bar blues, so I can do it, whatever. And then we did that for a few lessons and I had a keyboard at home that I practiced on and everything. But um, I've always had an appreciation for stuff I cannot do. Like dancers fascinate me. They mm -hmm. just, fa like, how do you make your body go up there? Or how did you catch her and not mm -hmm. drop her? Or how do you lift her up while she's singing? Yeah. Like, and that's the thing for me about musicals is that there's this moment where you just go, I don't even know how you did that. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't ever be in the audience and, and not be amazed at what you just did. Yeah. You know, no, I used no to matter feel, how much you know about how it's being done. Exactly. You should still be amazed. I should still be amazed. Yeah. I used to feel really guilty about it. Mm -hmm. Like if I would go to a, a show or whatever and I go, oh, all right. You know, and people say, that's really hard. It's very, I know, but I wasn't amazed. I need to be, I literally need to walk out of the theater going, well, I could never do that. Mm -hmm. Or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Like I could never do that. Um, even if I could, even if I like worked really hard and was able to do it, like I'll go see actors and I'll go, oh, that's great. Yeah. God, I, I wonder if I'm that good. I wonder if I can do that. And I just, and that's the thing for me about all performance. So that I love to just, you know, I'll go see, and I'm, you know, I don't like to, I mean, I'll go see a bad play if like I have a friend in it. It's like, this is not going to be very good. It hurts though. But it's like, it's just, it's long. <laughs> it's just long. It's like, God, you owe me so much lunch right now. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll, you'll have to pack that away. <laughs> so I'm curious, um, the performing life for you. You said that you had you'd gotten interested in all of this mm -hmm. while you were still a kid. Yeah. Um, what was the first performing you did? The very first thing I did was I was I was uh, because I read so well. Mm -hmm. I read really like I'm good. Like, you know, as far as uh, a cold read. Sure. I can just pick up a piece of paper and read it with expression. And mm -hmm. the teachers were always like, what? Mm -hmm. Cause like I was always practicing by myself in my room. I would mm -hmm. be reading, I would, you know. Um, and so um, I was always narrator. Mm -hmm. If there was any narrator or somebody need to read out loud in a thing. And so the first play I did, it was uh, maybe I was nine and it was in Miss Turner's class. And she, Miss Turner, a little side row, Miss Turner was just like like if Pam Greer had red like light red hair, mm -hmm. you know, like like lighter like light brown hair, I guess, mm -hmm. she would be Miss Turner. Like she had the knit dresses and the boots <laughs> and the attitude, the big earrings and the fro mm -hmm. and she was all, Y'all need to learn some of this math. <laughs> like she <laughs> You better be adding. And she was back in the day before you had everybody teach the same thing in every school. Right. You know, it was, as long as your kid learns enough of this stuff, we can send him on. Mm -hmm. She was teaching us black history. Mm -hmm. Like, just because she felt like, you need to know black history. And it wasn't like once a month, it was all year. Um, 
And so she I'm had, just loving the idea of yeah. being taught black history by Pam Greer. Yeah. She was like, mm. y'all better know about Benjamin Babico. <clears throat> he bit the clock girl, you know? <laughs> um, and so <laughs> she would have like puzzles, like where you fill in the puzzle and you find out what Crispin's addicts did and et cetera. And she had written this play about Harriet Tubman. And basically, you know, it was about the underground railroad. And so it was like, and then it was cold and Harriet was brave. And I remember this girl, her name was Regina, Regina Holmes. Oh my God, it just came to me, Regina Holmes. And she was the prettiest girl in class and everybody knew it. And she was the rich girl, quote Mm -hmm. unquote, in that her parents had a little bit more money than everybody else. She was that girl. Um, She always had the newest clothes and the latest styles, et cetera, et cetera. And so she was Harriet Tubman. And she was supposed to say, I am Harriet Tubman and I am the savior of my people. Mm -hmm. And she couldn't get I am. And so it was I am am. And I was like, okay, good. She can't read. <laughs> good. Good. Yeah, she might have a lot of money, I but she's, she's no reader. Um, but she was cast, as Harry told me, because she was a pretty girl back when they used to do that kind of thing. Glad that's over. Yeah, they don't do that anymore. Now they cast solely on talent. <laughs> so that was, but that kind of thing was your earliest stuff. Oh, yeah, that and was, did, I mean, it was great. I loved reading in front of the class. Yeah. I loved it. I love or, or assemblies. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, all right, we're gonna have Keith McGill read, blah 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 blah. That, that is one of the most underappreciated skills, and it's it's so funny, especially these days. You know, in a world where we're we're just inundated with people reading at us, you know, right. TV, radio, whatever. Right. People do it so badly still. They I get, do. That's I get so mad if I click on the radio, especially. I'm, I apologize to them, but on NPR sometimes, where your job is just to read oh, stuff to us. Oh my goodness! And they just. They do, and it, they only have to do it for like five minutes. Mm-hmm. At, at and most. And then they, it's like, it's a mess. This is a mess. Did you not look at this before you got it? You had an hour to look at this. As a performance thing, did you find that it was just another way to get in, get further into what you were reading or experience in a different way? I didn't, I didn't like, unless it was for a performance or for a class, I didn't mm-hmm. really read out loud. Never even like if you found like, you know, what was the the quote earlier from that title? Oh, like, that's just, just I loud. mean, I would just, I mean, I, I would always hear words in, in like someone else's voice. Like oh, really? that, that quote I heard in like this, like Charles Lawton's voice. <laughs> Comes the blind fury and the unsheathed sword and slits the thin spun life. You know, I never heard it in my voice because I always thought my voice was weird. Mm-hmm. I always thought my voice, it was, it was high pitched for a long time. I hadn't, I hadn't hit the nice baritone, but it was like, it was very high pitched mm-hmm. um, and whiny. I whined all the time. Um, and so I didn't like my voice. And so like people would mm-hmm. record my voice and go, ah, I hate that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I never really, I never really listened to me um, read very much mm-hmm. until, like I say, until you know, it counted for something. And then I was all, I get it. I'll read it. I'll do it. Yeah. I don't think I liked my voice as a kid. And I think that's what got me first started doing impressions is what I called them. You know, basically just different voices. Mm-hmm. I think I was trying to find a better voice because <laughs> and I, I found a tape not that long ago of me when I was, you know, seven or eight. And not only was it sort of high pitch and nasal, but the particular area that I come from in Louisiana People think of like, oh, that nice soft southern drawl. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, no! It was like a weird nasally pinched up. It was just the worst. I never realized I had that though. So it's very interesting you talking about being a, I'm assuming poor, white kid, 
in Louisiana and me being a poor black kid in Louisville mm-hmm. and how our lives were so seemingly parallel. Cause like there's still this little bit of, I don't quite, I, what is this world I've been born into? Is this some sort of cosmic joke? Actually, no, it was weirder. I, I, I would, I will not hide behind a, a falsity on this one. We were fine. My dad had a, had a furniture store. He was, you know, small businessman. Well, this interview is over. Sorry. Didn't mean to sleep.